0: this month we've been thinking about queenship but we've inevitably focused almost exclusively on european queens yet if we're flexible about the word queen which as we'll discover is rather problematic in itself then the role of a female monarch as a consort or a ruler is actually much more common globally than we might assume so In today's episode, we're drawing on examples from all over the globe to explore the nature of queenship, a woman's roots to power, her marital strategies and co-rule. We'll think about the nature of women's political and diplomatic power, about warrior queens and queenly peacemakers, and we'll consider reputations and legacy. Above all, I suppose we're asking, are there constants of queenship that transcend geography and culture? And in this episode, we'll be rounding up many of the themes that have come out over the course of this month. My guest is Dr. Elena Woodacre, Senior Lecturer in Early Modern European History at the University of Winchester. She's the author of The Queen's Regnant of Navarre, Succession, Politics and Partnership, 1274-1512, and Queens and Queenship, a Study of Global Queenship. She's also edited several collections, including A Companion to Global Queenship and is Editor-in-Chief of the Royal Studies Journal. Thank you so much for joining me to talk on Not Just the Tudors About Queenship. We're spending the whole month talking about queenship. But I really wanted to speak to you because of your work on your companion to global queenship and thinking about it in this kind of sense across the world and doing so much comparative work. So thank you so much for
1: coming on. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's great to be here.
0: May I start by asking you a rather impertinent question? And I'm really kind of turning the tables here because it's the sort of thing I get asked a lot because I'm writing about Henry VIII's queens. Queens and queenship have been studied for centuries. What made you decide to spend your time working on them? What do you think is new about the approaches we use
1: today? What remains to be said and explored? Absolutely. And there has been a lot of work on queens and queenship and also on monarchy and what I'd like to call like a comfort zone. There's pre-modern Europe, particularly so medieval and early modern Europe has been a really rich scene for us to mind, to look at queenship, to look at monarchy studies. And it's fantastic. That work has been great. But when you start looking at it globally, it gives you a very different perspective. And one of the things that really struck me when I started this work is that we've been looking at it really intently, but at the anomaly, not the norm. So when you look at kind of monarchy in the longer sense, it tends to be polygamous, not monogamous. So we've been looking at it in this kind of Christian, monogamous, very particular kind of geographical context. But when you look at it across like time and space, you realize we've been studying the odd one out, if you like. And so by placing it in the wider context, we get a whole nother view of how queenship works and how monarchy works.
0: And one of the things that's important to that in terms of thinking about a global perspective is to think about our use of language. I was fascinated to read in your work about how scholars, when they're writing about kings or queens, but they have to think about the words that they use because they shape our understanding of the role. Can you talk a bit about some of this sort of problematic terminology
1: and also how you have sought to overcome it? Absolutely. So we do tend to use this king and queen. And queen itself is a really tough one, because that comes from our Old English quen, which means the king's wife. And again, when you start talking about regnant queens, then you have to use these qualifiers. When we use things like sovereign or monarch, maybe we don't have those same kind of gendered issues or issues of what that word is supposed to mean. But it is really interesting when you start thinking about the titles that are given to, say, the preeminent woman in different monarchies, it does vary quite a bit. And we have to be a little bit careful just using our word queen, which again has a very particular meaning and just slapping it onto every royal woman who we identify as having a similar role. It is something we have to tread carefully. I do think we can still use the term queenship, for example, when we are talking about royal women and the practices of queenship more broadly, but we still have to, again, just be careful and use that with caution and recognise that there are different monarchical frameworks and that women have different positions and there may not be just one woman or the king's wife, for example, may not be the preeminent woman. So again, using what we think of as queen may not translate very well into other cultures and societies. That's very interesting. So the name and the power
0: don't necessarily go hand in hand. And the connotations of the English word are very much this subordinate secondary position as the wife of a king. Whereas I suppose if you're looking at even in Europe and European languages, ones that are taken from the Latin have a different connotation. If we're looking at Regina and we're looking at Rennes or other variations in Europe, then we've got a different meaning there, I suppose.
1: Absolutely. Because regina regina, etc. It is literally just the feminized form of the word rex or king. So it doesn't necessarily mean a consort or a spouse. It just is the female form of that word. So I think we do have to be a little bit careful because our word queen has a very distinctive meaning. And so we just have to be a little bit careful about how we apply it or use it with caution or use it with that kind of greater awareness, if you like.
0: The other thing That really stood out to me from your work is this sense that globally examples of female
1: rule are much more prevalent than we might have thought. It's something that I think is really exciting is that you can see female rule across all continents. It is obviously more prevalent in some spaces and some times than others, but it is something that happens everywhere. It's happening in Polynesia. We can see it in Africa. There's a really great article by Stefan Amaral who looks at the Indian Ocean, if you like, the plethora of female rule that we can see there. Sometimes there are rare examples, like in China, obviously, we've got Wu Zetan, or in India, you've got Razia Sultan. But again, in Japan, for example, you've got this kind of glut of regnant empresses in kind of what we would call the early Middle Ages, and even some in the early modern period. But today, female succession is not allowed in Japan. So it's really interesting. Some people assume based on modern understandings of female succession in Japan, that there has never been a tradition of that. And yet, if you go back in the history, there really was.
0: I suppose one thing we need to think about, first of all, is how people became queens. What were the different routes to power?
1: One route, particularly when we're talking about regnant queens, is inheritance, so the mechanisms of female succession. And that's actually what drew me into queenship, that question of kind of how does a woman come to power? How does a woman come to claim a throne or a crown? That's what really got me interested in it. But it's also important to recognize that women access power in lots of different ways, so not just as regnant queens. Now, obviously, even regnant queens co-rule this idea of whether they're a consort or a regnant or a regent queen. Again, they're co-ruling with someone, a husband, a child, or they might be ruling in place of that husband as like a lieutenant or again as a regent for an underaged or an incapacitated monarch, if you like. But there's also some women who come to power in unorthodox ways, so come to power after the death of a husband or even a coup. Catherine the Great is a great example of that. Zetan again, another one. The Empress Irene in Byzantium, again, blinded her son and took power. So there's all sorts of kind of unusual ways that a woman can take power, as well as the more kind of traditional mechanisms of either inheritance or co-rule. And do we have examples of how young
0: women were trained or prepared
1: for queenship? Like any job, preparation is key. And so we do have things like mirrors for queens, which were texts which were either instructional or held up ideals of how a queen should behave. So if you go back to the Middle Ages, you've got like Durand de Champagne's Speculum, you've got Christine de Pizan. But in the early modern period, we've got a couple of really great texts. One is Anne of France's Enseignement that she wrote for her daughter, Suzanne. And again, that was not necessarily written for a queen. It was someone just below that. Her daughter was not obviously going to be a queen. She was of royal blood, but in a slightly different situation. But we can still see those same kind of ideas. And we know Anne de Beaujeu, Anne de France, again, was important in the training of Royal women like Margaret of Austria, and formative to Anne of Bretagne, even so her ideas on that are really interesting also there 's a great example of Catalina of Austria, so the sister of Charles V she was Queen of Portugal. She wrote a fantastic set of instructions, if you like, for her daughter, Maria Manuela, who was the first wife of Philip of Spain, again instructing her on how to behave, how to comport herself, holding up the ideals of the Empress Isabel of Portugal, etc., as a model that she could follow so those kind of texts, if you like, give us an idea of the ways in which women were prepared. But there's also different kind of forms of training. We can see formal and informal training, so Catherine of Aragon's a really great example in both contexts. Teresa Ehrenfight did this great piece on raising Catherine of Aragon, and she talks about how Isabella La Catolica's kind of educational program for her children is very well known. She brought in humanist scholars, Latin, etc. That they were both the son and the daughters were obviously very well formally educated, but Catherine also picked up a lot from observing her mother, from also learning through the women of the household as well, and all sorts of training was given to her in all sorts of ways, so we can't just look at that educational program, as the only way she was learning how to be a queen. In the Ottoman Empire, we've got the Endurun, which is the inner court, the school of the inner court, which is training not just servants, but also women who would eventually become concubines of the sultan as well. The amount of training or preparation queens had varied. And sometimes with royal women, because betrothals changed So frequently and so often you could be being trained or prepared for a particular role and you might end up doing something completely different or marrying someone completely different. So again, that preparation might be for naught or you might end up in a role that you weren't prepared for. Henrietta Maria, again, wasn't necessarily being groomed to be Queen of England for most of her life. So that might have affected, again, the way that she carried out the role. So
0: in these different conduct books, these advice manuals, what sort of advice was given to potential queens
1: a lot of it was around affirming ideals of behavior so how queens should conduct themselves how they should Comport themselves, and we see a lot of that again in different kinds of ways. Valerie Shoot, for example, has looked at how some of that's communicated through book dedications. Lucy Dean has looked at how this was communicated through entries and pageant stage for the reception of royal brides that kind of communicated what was expected of them. And I often talk about these ideals as being the four perfects and the three Ps, if you like. And I know it's a little bit trite, but it's something I use with my students to help them get across these ideas. So this idea of being the perfect woman if you like, because they were meant to model femininity and express those gender ideals. They were meant to be the perfect wife, the perfect mother, but also the perfect ruler. So again, Durand de Champagne's Speculum was about being the good ruler as well as the good wife and mother. But they were also expected to be pious. That's something we can see across all religions globally and across all time, the expectation of modeling piety. They were expected to be pretty. We often talk of them being the fair woman of the land. And we know that not all queens were the most beautiful woman of the land, but there was this expectation even in Disney princesses, we can see this expectation of pretty princesses, if you like. And also they were meant to be peacemakers as well. So that was a key kind of aspect of their role or considered to be and peacemaking in all sorts of different ways. And do
0: you find that these ideals of queenship are universal? If you look at global examples, do they come up here or do we see markedly different ideals?
1: No, we do see so much connection. Those same ideals of being the ideal woman, the ideal wife, again, this idea of of piety, all of these things really translate across time, space, culture, religion. It's really interesting. Piety, as I mentioned, is a really key aspect of the practice of queenship, again, in whatever context, whatever religion you're in. And women express that through religious observations, religious ceremonial, religious patronage as well to express or or model that idea of piety to their subjects. So That is kind of a universal expectation. Again, the good wife and mother, that is another key thing. And going alongside that expectation of chastity, which again is part of the good womanhood, but also being the faithful wife and the good mother, ensuring the line of succession is pure, etc. So all of these ideals we can see really resonating across time, place, culture, religion.
0: Now, I guess if you have a girl, the first thing in a royal family is you've got to think about how you're going to marry her, And when the choices were being made about how to choose a spouse for a daughter, what do we see in terms of practices? This is a massive question across the world, all global history, all queenship. But with royal brides, do we see particularly endogamy, you know, marrying in or exogamy, you know, marrying out? What are the kind of different strategies and how do they affect the stability of different dynasties, these choices?
1: This is a really key element, if you like, and all of the choices are fraught with difficulty. No matter which path you choose or what decision you make, there are pros and cons, and they have to be carefully balanced and weighed. So, for example, endogamy, when you're marrying within kind of the king group or the dynasty, there are bonuses to that. And again, you're quelling perhaps rivalry between different branches of the family that might have competing claims to the throne. You're keeping resources within the family group, so whether that's wealth or lands, etc. The downside is that you've got the issue of consanguinity. So the Habsburgs, again, in our period, are a great example of this. They chose strategically to continue to marry members of the Spanish and Austrian branches together to one another. And that was great for keeping Habsburg unity politically. It was great for, again, keeping those claims within the family. The downside is you've got Carlos II or Charles II, who is horribly ill. It's a miracle that he survived as long as he did because of recessive genes and all the kind of issues of consanguinity that comes when you have repeated uncle-niece marriages, first cousins marrying first cousins. So there's a definite downside there. And also you're not expanding your network of alliances if you continually marry within the kin group. So there's some real pros and cons there. But if you marry out, again, you might gain alliances by marrying into a different royal family. But for a woman, she's leaving her family, she's making a huge transition that transition can be very difficult. Again, it may involve learning new languages, changing your religion, learning new court protocol, you're changing the way you dress, everything about yourself. And again, some women really struggle to make that transition effectively. You've also got the issue of marrying up, marrying down. So again, if you marry down, and that's often the case for princesses, particularly if your family is the top dog, you can really only marry down if you like. So that can be an issue. I know some of the Habsburg women tried to, because they felt that their family was a preeminent family in Europe. They took with them their cultures and traditions and said, well, we're the best, so we're going to bring it to you rather than me changing to what you do. So, Caterina Michaela going to the court of Savoy, that is marrying down in a way, but she used it as a way to be an ambassador of her family and to bring those court practices to the court of Savoy. Again, it can also lead to a loss of status of transition. So, thinking about the Tudor women, and Margaret Tudor and Mary Tudor, again, Henry VIII's sisters, in their second marriages, both technically married down. So, they went from being queens to marrying aristocrats, and obviously... They both, again, Mary Tudor continually called herself Queen of France during her marriage to Charles Brandon. It is technically leads to downgrading of position. And again, Margaret Tudor's decision to remarry really threatened her regency and her position as well. So it can be a really difficult thing to do to marry down. In terms of marrying up, a really good example towards the end of the early modern period is the Prussians. And they tended to choose brides from aristocratic families who were marrying up into the Prussian kind of dynasty rather than marrying other foreign princesses or other foreign royals. And they liked the dynamic that that gave, if you like, and also helped them establish their power and alliances within the region. So there's lots of strategies. There's no one right answer. And again, they all have their pros and cons.
0: And do we see similar strategies or choices to be made for Queen's regnant? Because most of us who are thinking about the Tudors primarily have had our ideas about Queen regnant skewed because Elizabeth didn't marry. But presumably most ruling queens did have to choose a spouse.
1: Absolutely. And again, my early modern queenship students are always, everyone's a big fan of Elizabeth I, myself included. And they always kind of go, well, Elizabeth I didn't marry. And so that must be the right answer. It worked really well for her. And it didn't. Obviously, it did work really well for her as a strategy because she used the possibility that she might marry as a cornerstone of her foreign policy. That worked really well for her. On the downside, the entirety of her reign, there's this massive anxiety because of Elizabeth's kind of shaky health and the fact that she didn't want to declare an heir and she had no heir of her own body, which did lead to factions at court. It led to concern and worry, particularly as she aged, what would happen, who would be the heir, what would be the repercussion, all the issues with the Grey Sisters, etc and other people who've been pinned out as potential heirs. So it's not a full post strategy and it certainly didn't work for Christina of Sweden, another regnant queen who chose not to marry. I wouldn't say just because she managed to make that work, that was the way forward, if you like. Yes, most regnant queens have to marry. It's one of the things that, again, dynastic monarchy means that you have to create more heirs and keep the succession going. Marriage is a key part of that. It's different for a regnant queen because obviously the gender-based assumptions, if you like, is that a man, as the head of the Family, head of the household will therefore have control over his wife and therefore will have much more power and authority than a wife would or a queen consort would. And this is an issue. So when you start to make those same choices, marrying in or out or up or down, they become more complicated. So marrying out means marrying a foreign spouse. And again, like we can see with Mary Tudor, there's huge anxiety over her marriage to Philip of Spain because Spain was top dog in Europe. And there was this huge and very reasonable fear that England. England. England would be swallowed up into the European and global empire and that they would be dominated by Spain because of that marriage. That is a real concern. But if you marry down within the realm, that's an issue too. Because again, as we see in the fear of Elizabeth potentially marrying Robert Dudley, that there was massive concern about that, massive jealousy amongst the nobility about that, about the preferential treatment that he had. Fundamentally, you're taking someone, as Baudin noted when he talked about the issues with regnant queens, you're making a man who's not supposed to be king. And that's an issue. And again, you've got someone who perhaps hasn't been groomed and trained, etc, to be king. So that's a problem. So marrying within the king group is a strategy that we often see with regnant queens. Again, that can have that issue of stemming a potential rival, particularly for a woman, that can be an issue. So with Mary II, again, marrying her cousin William of Orange, that was a good thing. It meant that if she'd come to the throne and hadn't been married to him, he might have been a potential rival claimant. So marrying to each other, again, intensified their joint claim, again, in some ways enabled the Glorious Revolution. Elizabeth of York and Henry VII, I personally think she got the better claim. Henry VII is very aware of that, so he tries to make it clear that I'm claiming this on my own rank, but I'm marrying Elizabeth of York, not I'm marrying her because she really should be queen. But it's a difficult one. And then you've got scenarios like in France, again, Claude of France, she can't inherit Louis XII's throne. But marrying Francis I, her cousin, that bolsters his claim, if you like. So we've got some interesting scenarios. But the downside is when you marry a cousin, they can try to take over because they do have a good claim to the throne, and they might feel like I should have been king anyway. That can be a problem. And we're still unpicking. William and Mary the Second tends to be overshadowed by William. Now there's been some new research. I've got a PhD student working on her at the moment, and we're really starting to unpick Mary's role better, so that she is being seen as a regnant queen and not just the "and Mary" bit of the. Way. (laughs) But they had the dual monarchy. And that was a particular challenge of that kind of joint authority. It's a difficult one. I think Isabel and Ferdinand, Isabel of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon showed the best case scenario, if you like, for that kind of the marriage of a regnant queen. But that was done through a series of agreements that really clearly laid out her authority and his authority and what her role is and what his role was. And that really helped with that. But it's a very difficult thing to marry a regnant queen and do it well. That's
0: interesting. And of course, it's what I suppose Mary I is trying to do when she marries Philip of Spain. She's trying to have a relationship like Isabella and Ferdinand, which is an equal joint monarchy. And that doesn't work out that well. So it is difficult to do. You mentioned earlier polygamy, or I suppose in this case when you think about polygyny as well. So what, in a sort of global context, should we learn from practices of polygyny and concubinage and how these might alter our ideas of queenship?
1: One of the things that's really key when we start looking at monarchy in a polygamous framework is for women, it's a complete game changer. But one of the things it really does is it doesn't necessarily devalue the woman's role or the woman's place in monarchy, but it shifts where the emphasis is. So, again, in a Christian monogamous kind of framework, the emphasis is on the king's wife. So this idea of family unit of the husband and the wife and then the heir, this kind of holy trinity, if you like, at the center of monogamy totally different when you get into a polygamous framework because the emphasis then becomes the king's mother so there can only be one wife in a monogamous scenario but there can only be one king's mother in a polygamous one, and therefore she has the singularity, and she often is the most important of the preeminent woman at court if a king can have many wives, or he has many consorts and concubines, etc., but he only has one mother, her role is special and unique and valuable. So I suppose we see that in an
0: example, even in Europe, someone like Louise de Savoy and Francis I of France, who has two wives but many mistresses, but one mother.
1: Absolutely. I think we can see some similarities and obviously France is a great example of the maîtresse en titre. So you have have effectively women who are very important at court who are not necessarily the king's wife. We have to be a little bit careful. The monogamous framework is not as monogamous as we might claim it to be. But yeah, again, a huge difference is the preeminence of the king's mother in a polygamous framework.
0: Have you ever thought about sex in ancient Rome? Perhaps you've pondered over the origins of civilization, Or maybe you've had restless nights contemplating where Alexander the Great's lost tomb might be. I know I have. If so, we've got the perfect remedy. It's the Ancients on History hit. The Ancient History Podcast. We've got interviews with leading experts on all of the above and so much more. So why not give the podcast a listen? Subscribe to The Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
1: wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit.
0: Now, you talked about chastity earlier, and obviously chastity is very important if the line of succession depends on inheritance and the children born to the Queen. So chastity is essential But presumably that means that maternity is also essential for queens.
1: Again, when you've got a dynastic monarchy, succession is everything. Dynastic continuity is everything. And so it's the production of heirs that is key. Now, in a monogamous framework, all of that pressure of maternity is going on to one woman. There is one woman who can bear legitimate heirs for the king. And that's very difficult, obviously, in a polygamous framework that load is spread there are many potential people who can produce heirs for the king but then it can lead to issues of kind of competition both within the harem or the zanana or the inner palace but also at the point of succession as well so there's different issues there in terms of the points of failure or points of pressure if you like. Maternity is really important a great power can come from being mother of the king so whether that's again in a polygamous framework where that can totally alter your position or even again in the situation of European queens it can very much stabilize and enhance their position during the reign of their husband that they are the mother of the heir. But it means they're continuing to be important in the next reign. They become the pivot point between two reigns. They can even be more powerful in the reign of their son than in their husband. Catherine de' Medici is a great example of this. She's far more powerful during her son's reigns than she is in her husband's. Part of that is because of the relationship she has with her husband, the presence of Diane de Poitiers. But again, she's a really great example of the power that comes from being the mother of the king. Now, if you're a childless queen, you can can be more vulnerable and Beatrice d'Aragona was again divorced ostensibly because of her childlessness. Catherine of Aragon, obviously there's the king's great matter. She was not childless, but she had not produced a male heir. But at the same token, Christine Giemann and Teresa Ehrenfight have written a great chapter about childless queens and how effective they can still be at exercising the role of queens. So we have to be a little bit careful not to put all the kind of eggs and you're not a good queen if you don't have children. Again, going back to the thinking of Elizabeth and Mary Tudor or even Mary and Anne Stewart, again, none of those queens have issue. And a great debate I like to have with my queenship students is if maternity is job number one for a queen and these women don't have a child, does that mean they're ineffective as queens? And the answer is, of course, no. So we have to be a little bit careful. There is more than maternity, but maternity is an absolutely key aspect of the role.
0: I want to talk a lot about power in a second, but one thing that is striking is that there's often a lot of controversy around
1: queen mothers. Why do you think... That is, I think part of the thing with queen mothers is they are, by some people, seem to be kind of interlopers. They can also be foreigners. So as we talked about, many queen consorts are foreigners. Even in Polygamous framework, again, many women came from other lands. Tan possibly came from the Ukraine or from Russia. Again, her origins are not completely clear. So they're often foreigners, and so again, in the same issue of giving power to a foreign king consort, there is that concern. We can certainly see that again. Thinking about the French regents, again, Catherine de Medici, Anne of Austria. Catherine she was seen as that kind of Italian Jezebel. And there's the Mazarinades and the Fronde, which really was very worried about France being ruled by an Italian cardinal and a Spanish queen. So there is a lot of concern about when queen mothers are powerful, that again, it is a foreigner whose loyalties may be suspect.
0: So let's think a bit about power and agency and the ability of a queen to take Political action and to have political influence. How does that vary across cultures in this time period?
1: There's been a lot of debate about power and agency and how we define them. But thinking about the factors that enable a woman to have power is slightly different when we're talking about inheritance and female succession and the kind of mechanisms through which a woman comes to the throne. But thinking about in the more general sense particularly when we're talking about a married queen even a pregnant queen or a consort queen again a lot of it has to do with their relationship with their family members so their spouse and their family members more broadly or again if they're co-ruling with their son or have influence through their son again that relationship so personal relationships are important monarchy is a family enterprise so again whether it's the marital relationship the family relationship even daughters we have some very powerful daughters who come to power because of their relationship with their father, that their father trusts them. You've got Jahanara Begum in the Mughal Empire, who's incredibly important after the death of her mother, Mumtaz Mahal, that the Taj Mahal was named for. And you also have Pari Khan Khanum in the south of Iran. Again, her father, the Shah Tamas, entrusts a great deal of power and authority and influence to her because he values her counsel. So the importance of good personal relationships can really enable a great deal of power and agency for royal women. Does much of the power of
0: a queen come from the wealth that she has available to kind of deploy for the exercise of patronage from what she owns in terms of lands and things?
1: Yeah, this is a really exciting area. This is an area that, again, is really growing and blossoming in queenship studies right now. It's an aspect of queenship that hasn't really had as much focus as it should do because, again, the old analogy is that money is power, right? Controlling resources, economic resources, whether that's lands, investments, money, etc., gives you a great deal of power and it can give you the power of patronage, whether that's political patronage, or again, artistic, cultural patronage, the ability to commission great projects like palaces, Ottoman women incredibly visible through their architectural patronage, constructing madrasas, mosques, great kind of monuments to their authority and their power and their wealth, which give them a long-term legacy that was really valuable. So yes, having access to funds is really important to being able to fully exercise the Queen's role, to have power and influence and to construct a legacy through patronage.
0: When we think of power and queens, we often think of queens going to war. We think of Elizabeth I at Tilbury giving that speech and these ideas come to mind. Is that really what queens are doing? Is that the heart of their activities with regard to diplomacy? Or do we see them more likely to be, I suppose, acting as peacemakers?
1: One of the things that's really important is that queens are deeply involved in war and peace and politics in every possible way. And so, for example, I have a PhD student who just finished now she's looking at the Middle Ages, but she's really arguing that we've undersold or not fully understood the myriad of ways in which Queens are involved in war, because we have looked so much traditionally, particularly in the Middle Ages, at men on the field of battle and not really appreciating the full spectrum from negotiations and diplomacy at the beginning, when they break down all the way to making peace at the end and the provisioning of troops strategy and all of the elements in which women were really deeply involved. So there is that spectrum of war. But in terms of diplomacy, again, that there is this expectation that women are engaged in peace. So there's this understanding, this yin and yang thing, that men are martial and violent, and women are the other side. They are peacemakers, if you like. So again, we can think about kind of biblical analogies for this. It resonates across cultures, this idea that women are connected to peace. And women are engaged in diplomacy in all sorts of ways. So Their own marriages are parts of matrimonial diplomacy. Later as mothers, they're deeply involved in creating matrimonial diplomacy for their own children, arranging alliances and marriages that are going to have positive repercussions, hopefully politically. We see women deeply involved in epistolary diplomacy. That's an area that has really exploded in recent years, looking at women's agency through letter writing. Again, Nadine Ackerman's work on the Winter Queen on Elizabeth Stewart is a perfect example of that. So there's so much great work on that ambassadors as well and again the early modern era is the age of the new diplomacy right where we create these formalized ambassadorial networks gift exchange women are deeply involved in that but also negotiations the peace of the ladies with Margaret of Austria and Louise of Savoy is a great example of how women are getting down to the table and hammering out a piece so yes they're involved in all different ways in making peace but also in aspects of war that perhaps we haven't appreciated.
0: Now, the chief challenge for many of these women in this position is that they have to work with men. They have to either work with their husband in a kind of co-rulership, as we've talked about some examples, or presumably even if they're a lone woman, they need to find male allies to work with. What are some of the challenges that we see here?
1: This is really important, this idea of co-rulership. and I remember when I was creating this book one of the statements i made is that all queens are co-rulers and that kind of came back from the reviewer saying not sure i agree with that but i really stand by that because all rulers are co-rulers if we look at monarchy and this understanding of what we call corporate monarchy it's this understanding there might be one person who's credited with the regnal name but there's a whole group of people who are involved in rule one individual cannot rule completely on their own so whether they're sharing some of that power with bureaucrats and or whether they're sharing it with counselors or favorites mistresses wives mothers Children, etc., they've got to share power in some way, shape, or form. And so you're right, when someone's married, obviously there is that dynamic between spouses, and that's often where we can see a lot of co rulership and power sharing. But again, women like Elizabeth I, again, we can really see her co-opting like Cecil, for example, first William and then Robert, in that kind of co-rule as partners in rule. Again, Christina of Sweden and Axel Oxenstierna. Again, there are different people that you can co-opt. It might be your children and heirs, training them for the role by co-opting them in rule. Again, it might be Charles V, again, used the women of his family in all sorts of ways, from his wife, who was often ruling in his absences, to his aunt, Margaret of Austria, later his sister, Mary of Hungary, Then his daughters, Maria of Austria and also Margaret of Parma, again, working for him in different ways. So he was very savvy. Even his step-grandmother, Romana de Foix, again, was a vice-regent in Valencia. So he was very savvy in terms of bringing these women in and sharing power with them in different ways to help him rule this global empire.
0: Do you think that that sense of people being brought in, of these kind of networks around rulers means actually studying queenship isn't quite as kind of elitist and exclusive as it sounds.
1: Yeah, no, I often have had people say to me that queenship study is some kind of form of kind of great man or great woman history but it really isn't again when you think about all the people that are connected to a queen they are at the heart of these very wide ranging networks so those networks can be networks of kind of their family their natal family their marital dynasties their children their peers there's court networks but those court networks and particularly their networks of service and patronage are incredibly wide ranging in terms of the social scale so a royal woman's network of service goes all the way from the, you know the kind of elite echelons of the court right down to their laundresses and again on their lands out to tenant farmers that are in various kind of aspects of the realm etc and people again one of my colleagues kathleen sarti works on a danish queen who had a gunpowder mill there were people working for her in a gunpowder mill so again these people are part of her wider network so we can see every echelon of society connected to queens in various different ways so by tracing those networks we can really see these women are points of connection between people of all social classes across the entire realm and far beyond can i ask you
0: some questions about sort of modern resonances of your work, really. I mean, you are writing about women who are incredibly influential. Those women, apart from Elizabeth II herself, tend to be politicians. Do you think that we see examples of powerful women making a difference for ordinary women as they rule. I'm often struck by Elizabeth I and her exceptionalism, and I wonder if that is generally the case or whether there's a kind of uplift with these women.
1: Yes and no. It's very difficult in the early modern period, at least, to see a definite link of there's a woman on the throne and therefore women are empowered more generally. But what it does do is it creates a normalcy around women exercising power that, again, while these women might be exceptions in some ways, it makes it seem more natural for the next woman to take power and the next woman and the next. So again, with regnant queenship, whether we wanna argue about Lady Jane Grey or Mary Tudor being the first, that precedent enables Elizabeth, which then enables the Stuart Queens, which enables Victoria, which enables our own queen, Elizabeth II. But it's created a climate in which it's not unusual for a woman to be the ruler. Elizabeth I is still seen as one of our greatest rulers, regardless of gender ever, if you like, in this country. And so it creates an expectation that it isn't strange, if you like, for a woman to rule or or to have power or to have authority. And again, we had Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May during the reign of Elizabeth II. So if you've got a woman as a head of state, then maybe it's not that unusual that a woman is also prime minister, if that makes sense. And I know that, again, looking at kind of Islamic women, Fatima Manessi and her Forgotten Queens of Islam, and also the more recent book, Unforgettable Queens of Islam, both of those books really make an interesting connection between pre-modern Islamic women having power. And modern Islamic politicians like Benazir Bhutto, for example, I'm saying that actually, this is part of a wider continuum, that we can't just look at Queens as kind of odd examples, or that you can't see a resonance between the pre-modern and the modern era, if you like. So
0: the impact tends to be in terms of the legacy as opposed to the effect at the time
1: that they are reigning. Yes, absolutely. It's not so much a case of, say, for example, someone like Elizabeth I coming to the throne and then passing a whole kind of catalogue of laws that enable women, etc. But it's more about, again, changing what is normal, what is acceptable, and changing the understanding that it is possible for women to exercise power. And exercise power, and again, that female authority becomes accepted, normalised, if you like, rather than just an oddity or an exception or something to be feared or worried about.
0: In this Jubilee month, we have seen over the course of the Jubilee weekend huge amounts of ritual and ceremonial practice, whether we're talking about Trooping the Colour or the service of Thanksgiving or even actually the kind of ritual of the Queen appearing on the balcony. Do you see between your work and the modern day any parallels in terms of rituals and ceremony
1: for modern queens? And do they serve the same purpose? That's a really good question. And I think one thing, I'm going back to the idea of what you're saying with the balcony. I think the public engagement element of ceremony, I think we can see as having some really interesting parallels. Obviously, Elizabeth I, famous for her progresses, again, that she went around the realm and showed herself to the people and engaged with the people. And again, Elizabeth II's reign has been marked with exactly that same thing, even on a global scale. And again, my colleagues down in Sydney have this fantastic modern monarchy hub. And they look a lot at royal tours, the way that the modern British royal family is engaged particularly Elizabeth II, she has traveled incessantly during her reign showing herself to her people, connecting with her subjects in person. So we can see some really interesting connections there in a very different scale, but that same premise, that same idea of the physicality, if you like, of engaging with the people. Now ceremonial, again, one of the things about monarchy is that it is based on tradition and by preserving ancient traditions and revering them, but also it's got to continually modernize and change and adapt as society changes or the needs of the monarchy changes. So for example, when we've got Mary Tudor coming to the throne, the coronation has to be adjusted because we've got a female monarch, not a male monarch. And then of course it's slightly different when you have a female monarch wedding uh, a king consort. So everything just has to be slightly tweaked and adjusted, but yet that same ceremony and reverence stays the same in many ways. Elizabeth II, again, she's leveraging the ancient traditions of the coronation ceremony, but she televises it. That's a huge kind of innovation, which, again, reflects modern society. So it's that continuity, the power of continuity in tradition, but, again, making those adjustments as you need to make it relevant to a modern era.
0: My last question for you is this. Having now completed lots of work on queenship, your queens and queenship, your companion to global queenship, what do you feel are the things that you really want people to know, that you really want to convey about queenship and particularly, I suppose, for our purposes, early modern queenship when you were looking at the global picture?
1: The biggest thing that I can say is there are so many amazing women out there whose stories need to be told. That's one of the things I'm continually struck by. And we have some amazing queens in the early modern period that we do know so well. I love Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots and Catherine de Medici. They're amazing. I'm not saying we should stop looking at them, but we need to expand that framework because there are so many amazing women whose stories aren't being told, who really should be as well known who have just as exciting kind of lives, just as important legacies, but we're just not as aware of them. So that would be my biggest kind of clarion call is that we need more work on all of these amazing women to tell their stories. And that again, Louise Wilkinson and I, our work on the Lives of Royal Women series, we're really hoping to draw these women out of the woodwork, bring them into kind of the foreground of the story again, and really hear all the amazing stories that they have to tell about queenship, power, agency, and authority.
0: And it does seem to be women who are writing about them and the whole, doesn't it? Occasionally we have some male scholars, but come on, the men, you can write about women as well.
1: Absolutely, Absolutely, and vice versa, so absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for
0: sharing with us this kind of primer on early modern queenship. And I do recommend that people pick up your little book. It's Queens and Queenship. It's a very quick little read, but just such a wonderful overview of queenship globally. For those who want to know more, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to take part. It's always great to talk about Queen's.
0: And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at HistoryHit.com.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods,